Well, welcome back to part two of the interview with Michael Goldfarb. This is the uh, part of the interview where he delves more deeply into his choices for uh, media distraction during the quarantine period. So, without further ado, here's Michael. Are there movies or TV shows that have occupied you during this time? Um, yes. Uh, well, first of all, like many people, Tuesday night is when Better Call Saul drops on yeah. Netflix. I, I'd like to save it for the weekend. It's like, it's like, it's like I, I just put it off. It's like taking the icing off a cupcake. I'll eat the cupcake. <laughs> the I'll take the icing later. Um, and we, I really do enjoy Better Call Saul enormously. And... Um, we also, I finally had a chance. I, mean, I think a lot of people probably are catching up with things during this period because there's a, just so much has come out. And you, and I just, I had never seen a terrific series called Babylon Berlin, okay. which came out, God, four or five years ago, and it's set in the 1920s, late 1920s, in fact, 1929, in Berlin, and it's Babylon, as, you, as we say, and it, it conflates a lot of really interesting historical movements that were going on in a detective thriller, and it's elliptical, it's incredibly well made, and I really enjoyed it. The only problem I have with it, I had to rent it off Amazon, is that season one ends with so many cliffhangers. And, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos is not being nice <laughs> about how much he charges, considering, I mean, the series is several years old. I mean, I just think he's wrong. So I'm counting to 10 before I give him any more of my money and watch series two to find out what actually happens to the, to the main characters. Yeah, I'm similarly addicted to a, a series called Ozark, which is really oh, crazy. But <laughs> Ozark, you know, when Ozark came out, Jason, um, Bateman. I, Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, yeah. and a lot of people... I'm going to be honest with you. I'm very happy that I got into hard news because I find most arts reporting and cultural reporting now is pretty dull. Most critics don't aren't particularly good. And there was this thing about, oh, well, Ozark is just Breaking Bad set in the Ozarks. And it's not. <laughs> it's, um, it's a wonderful, it's much more of a real detective kind of thriller. And it, it too, like Breaking Bad, looks at the deep corruption of the drug, uh, the intersection of the drug trade, and you know upper middle class life. Right. And that's fine. But it's really well made. It's really well acted. And season three, which you just watched and no, I watched, I've, I, has, I've, I've just started it, and and I'm just uh -huh. I've, I've heard about season three being great, and I'm still on season one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you have 
episode after episode yeah. of pleasure and, and, and uh, twisting plots. Crazy. I don't know how they do it. So it, it is interesting what you just said earlier, that Netflix and the, all the you know, on-streaming movies came around at this time. You know, and, and everybody, I think you were right, that everybody's got this backlog of episodes and material. It's almost like, I, I hate to say this, but very, very appropriate for this time, you know, that somehow there seems the stars have aligned in a very strange way in terms of uh, providing an amazing amount of quality material um, to watch, to get your mind off of things. Yeah, it, it is amazing. And it's uh, very useful. I suppose we'd all be reading more. Yes. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, I, 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 mean, I plowed through a 900-page novel, and I just finished uh, an excellent thriller by a writer named Joseph Cannon, spelled with a K, K-A-N-O-N, um, who writes... In, in, the, in the vein of um, somewhere between John le Carre and Robert Harris. That is to say, he's looking at uh, life in the Cold War and sets detective stories and spy fiction there. But he's at a, a slightly higher plane than most uh, genre writers. And I just read one about uh, called The Defectors, and that's pretty good. And I could read more books, doubtless. This reminds me, you know, when I was a junior in high school, I got uh, mononucleosis, which the Brits call glandular fever. And I, was, I had to miss, I don't know, five weeks of school. And it was just the most boring time. Of my, uh, you can imagine, and it was at this time of year, uh, in April, May, in you know Philadelphia suburbs, and life went on without me. And in those days, you know, I didn't have a streaming service, so I read a lot and dozed while I was reading, and you know, probably slept through half the pages I was turning, and uh, tended to watch late afternoon chat shows which were actually quite good in those days and that's how I spent my time but now you know from about 8 until about 11 every night it's streaming services which, which brings me to another question which is how is this epidemic this whatever you want to call it going to change us is it going to change us permanently into a different kind of society, in your view? Well, look, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I, it's not just, you know, politi our political structures and our social structures that we see are quite fragile. I mean, I do genuinely think that journalism isn't very good at the moment. And I've known that it isn't very good for a while because, you know, I would... I'm a journalist, and I, I still practice journalism, and I see how um, things have deteriorated. The standards of reporting are down. And, you know, and I also understand that most papers 
survive on these um, clickbait, speculative articles. So I, I prefer I, I prefer not to do that. I do think that people should worry less about coronavirus. Um, it's it's not the plague. It's not even HIV, which was instant, which was so deadly, and came in at a particular community in such a way that you couldn't even talk about it for years. Um, you know, coronavirus is out there. People know about it. Things are mobilized against it. But what I think will change us forever is you can't have 22 million people made jobless in a month and not expect that, that it will severely impact the organization of society, pol politics, and um, just how secure people feel about life. And when people feel insecure, unstable, they make bad decisions. I'm, my next podcast, which I've written the script and I'm, I'll probably get it out by the end of the week, is includes a history of Germany, not a, a full history, obviously, but just a quick summary of what happened in Germany in the late 1920s. You know, people have an image of Germany and the Depression, you know, terrible and hyperinflation, you know, you need a wheelbarrow of cash to buy a loaf of bread. <clears throat> By the late 1920s, that was all done with. That was a two-year period um, early in the 1920s, just after the war. And by the late 1920s, things were okay. It, not okay, but they were on the road to recovery. And in 1928, there was a general election. Germany has a parliamentary system. They had a dozen or more political parties contesting it. And the Social Democratic Party came first. And the National Socialist German Workers Party, which was allowed to contest the election for the first time since uh, the Beer Hall Putsch and Hitler being arrested and put in prison, came ninth. They got about 2% of the vote. Nothing. They were a nothing party. Um, there was a nationalist party that came second. It wasn't the Nazis. That was 1928. In 1929, the stock market crashed in New York. The knock-on effect was global and instantaneous. And in 1930, there was another election. And in this one, the Nazis came second. What was the difference? Well, um, they had a 40% increase in unemployment. That simple. That's all. People were angry, they were afraid, and there was a demagogic leader who they had rejected decisively just 18 months before. And I'm not saying that anything like that would happen again today. But what I will say is that you cannot begin to understand what 22 million people 
losing their jobs will do to, to a country. It's too frightening to contemplate. That is incredible. Tell us about your podcast, uh, because we need to know. Uh, I don't know quite how you come up with all these things, but uh, that is uh, that is quite a uh, a story for our times. And uh, yeah. my podcast, I call it FRDH, which stands for First Rough Draft of History, which is what journalists when we're trying to tell ourselves we do important work, we say we're writing the first rough draft of history. And up to a point, that's probably true. And so I try to balance looking at current events, try to provide the historical context for what's happening. Because one of the things that changed over the decades um, that I've been in the game is that the historical context that is an essential part. I mean, very few events come out of nothing. And I always thought that it helped my NPR listeners to understand why they should care what was happening in Northern Ireland. Why should they care? I mean, unless, you're, unless you were living in Boston and you're an Irish American, really, why would you care? You know? But if you tell someone that the reason this happened is that in, at the Battle of the Somme, this happened, Two sentences, that's all you need. People really began to be hooked into the story. So I try and look at what's been going on in what's going on in terms of news and put it in its historical context. And then there are other times I just do straight up history. I mean I've written a book of history and you know I'm kind of a non-academic historian. And so sometimes it's straight up history. And then periodically I do a, a feature called Bible study for atheists, where I take, put current events uh, and find their, the biblical reference to them. It's kind of a, an answer to Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham. You know, they're, they're, you don't have to believe to know your Bible and to find ways of applying the lessons to contemporary events. And I never ask people to send, well, I do ask people to send me money, but I don't ask them as relentlessly as Jerry Falwell or Franklin <laughs> or any other televangelist. Maybe I should. Yeah. Oh, I, um, so I, for a moment I was thinking, you're the new Alistair Cook, who I used to listen to love, and he had such a good breadth of understanding about historical events and Temporary events connect the two just so eloquently, so well. Um, yeah, which it was. Uh, he was uh, his letter from America, which I don't think uh, Americans really appreciated Alistair Cook for different reasons, but the Brits really appreciated him for for a letter from from America, which was one of the uh, best essays you could ever read. On uh, you know, best kind of. As you say, first draft of history. Uh, well, I, I, I listened to him, and that's I. When I started working for NPR, our office was at the BBC World Service headquarters at Bush House, and so I had a lot of opportunities to you know moonlight and do stuff 
for the BBC World Service. And one day they asked me to do one of these essays. I mean, this is not a form that NPR has. And I think it's a lack, frankly. But, um, and I went, so I wrote, you know, a 14 minute long essay and read it. And I had in the back of my mind somewhere that, you know, the way you do this is in the Alistair Cook way. You know, you have a theme, but you can go this way and that way. And over 14 minutes, you can uh, tell an anecdote that isn't even necessarily directly about the subject. You know, you can just go and you can, uh, you can get to your point in a kind of conversational style. And so they liked what I did. And I've, I've been doing these things regularly for the last you know, 20 odd years. And by the way, d- during the course of it, I got to know his producer very, very well. And so I heard all the latest gossip about him as he got older and continued well into his 80s to crank out Letter from America. Um, so he's become my role model. And I hope that well into my 80s, I can find someone to pay me just a little bit to write a 14 minute essay every week about what's happening in America. And I should add that in my misspent youth, I was a cab driver in New York for a couple of years. And one night on Madison Avenue, (coughs) I was flagged down by three well-dressed people and the door was opened and there was a, you get in first. No, you get in first, you get in first. And finally, this very tall man slid across the back seat and said, uh, 96th and 5th Avenue, please. And it was Alistair Cook. And I hesitate. To... Sorry about that. Keep going. <laughs> and it was Alistair Cook. And I hesitate to say, but he was absolutely drunk. But it was okay, because he appreciated being recognized and uh, was charming in his inebriated state. Oh, wow. That's a powerful memory. I can just... Okay. uh, So we have uh, any other... We've reached the end of our time, which uh, I I wish we could go on for another 40 minutes, but um, I will edit down um, accordingly. Uh, But there's so much here. Anything else you want to add? Any other comments or, or recommendations or things that are on your mind? And then we'll close it out. No. Um, I, w- I would simply say, uh, in this time of coronavirus, I started signing my correspondence, my emails. Be healthy. And then uh, a novelist I know called, uh, a novelist I know, Alexander Hemon, Sasha Hemon, uh, who's born in Bosnia, but has been living in the U.S. since the early 90s, and taught, speaks perfect English, writes perfect English, tweeted about a month ago that um, when we say Nastrovia, or it means to your health, right? And that there was a time when your health wasn't just a salute over a drink that it was hello and goodbye. 
because there was a time in our history when being healthy was actually a doubtful proposition. And people would wish, what was the best thing you could do? The best wish you could say for someone was, be healthy until I see you again. So I've started saying, be healthy, which is nosdrovia, or as we say in Yiddish, sei gesund. And so that's what I say. That's very good. Uh, Thank you so much. Good luck with this. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Take